the bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ. The wine for which we give thanks is a communion of the blood of Christ. That preposition is significant. It tells us that we're not just sharing a meal with Christ. We are enjoying, as we receive Christ sacramentally through and by means of the consecrated bread and wine, we receive Christ himself. We enjoy a true communion of and in Christ. Welcome to Mid-America Reform Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues from a Reformed perspective. You're listening to episode 123, and I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. We continue our series on the sacraments this week by giving our attention to the Lord's Supper, led by Dr. Venema, who will give us a general introduction of communion, giving a brief survey of varying views of the sacrament while highlighting the Reformed view. In an earlier podcast, we talked about the sacrament of Christian baptism. In this podcast and a subsequent podcast, we want to turn to the second of the two sacraments that our Lord has appointed for the benefit of his church and for the communication of himself and his graces to his people, and that's the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Now, just to repeat myself, we did say earlier that Broadly speaking, a sacrament is a visible word that the Lord appoints to accompany the uh, preaching of the holy gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to, by means of the consecration of elements, visible signs, the Lord aims to communicate the the word of the gospel and its promise in a visible form, an old Augustinian definition that has played a useful role in the history of the church is it's a visible sign of an invisible grace. Uh, We talked about the sacrament of Christian baptism as a sacrament of incorporation into Christ and the body of Christ. I, I like to think of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper as a sacrament of nourishment or strengthening of the faith of those who belong to the church, who've been baptized, who've professed their faith, And they come to the table, and the Lord at the table uh, enjoys fellowship, communicates himself, his body and blood to his people. Now, just a couple of things about the Lord's Supper in general. Unlike baptism, which is a sacrament that is administered but once, not to be repeated, the obvious practice of the early church, there's probably an allusion to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, even in Acts 2, when it says they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and in the breaking of bread. That's language used by Luke also in his gospel previously when the Lord broke bread with the men on the road to Emmaus. Some suggest that even there, there may have been some kind of meal, or perhaps a meal of communion, But certainly, I think in that language, in the language of the Apostle Paul, in an important passage on the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, it becomes apparent that it was the regular practice of the early church to, together with the ministry of the Word, when they assembled for worship on the first day of the week, to break 
bred together. Just as a sidebar, it's interesting that they enjoyed that sacramental meal of communion, koinonia with Christ, uh, often in association with what was called the agape or the love feast or meal that they shared together as a congregation when they gathered. Uh, and just to, to extend that sidebar a little bit, I, I would commend that as a practice appropriate for the church even in our time to not only regularly sit together at the table of the Lord and enjoy the sacrament, receive the sacrament of Holy Communion, but to enjoy also as an extension of the communion participation that the whole body of the church has with Christ to enjoy uh, a rich meal fellowship and communion together at the ordinary table uh, where we eat and drink together and uh, grow together in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a number of things in general that I want to say about the uh, sacrament of the Lord's Supper is I'm not going to get too far into the question of the frequency of its administration, whereas baptism incorporates us and is administered but once into the body of Christ. The Lord's table is a sacrament of frequent celebration. There's a lot of debate these days about whether it should be administered regularly whenever the word is preached at each worship service from week to week, weekly communion. I'll just in shorthand cut through that debate by saying I think perhaps an optimal practice somewhere between insisting on weekly administration and receiving of of communion, perhaps monthly. Uh, I push back a little bit against those who insist that it must be administered whenever the word is preached, uh, partly for practical reasons in terms of the difficulty of implementing that practice, particularly in context. Even Calvin, who wanted the sacrament to be administered weekly, had to uh, accommodate the people who were not prepared for or willing to uh, embrace the practice. Um, and so you can argue about that. I, I don't think it's worth disturbing the peace of the church to uh, insist upon weekly communion, and that's a possibility. Calvin was wise enough pastorally to uh, avoid that kind of approach. The two elements in the sacrament are, of course, the bread and the wine. The Lord's Supper was instituted on the occasion of the celebration of the Passover, though I don't think it should be viewed as nothing more than a new covenant replica of the old covenant sacrament, or rite, perhaps, of the annual meal. There are differences. We'll talk more about that in our second session when we talk about who should be admitted to the Lord's table to be nourished there uh, as they receive in the way of faith the elements of the bread and the wine. Now, several additional comments about this sacrament. It, uh, It should be frequently administered. It should only be administered in association and with the word. It accompanies, and in relationship to which it's a visible sign and seal. Uh, In the Roman Catholic practice, historically, the uh, language of the Mass is used for this particular sacrament, deriving from the ancient practice of the dismissal that took place at a certain point in the service when the Lord's Supper would be administered, uh, non-communicant or non-believing, professing, Uh, full members of the congregation would not 
come to the table or receive the sacrament. Uh, while I'm on the matter of names, perhaps that's an, a point of some interest and importance, uh, we typically speak of Holy Communion, which is perfectly legitimate. I've already mentioned Paul uses the language of a participation or a communion in and of Christ that takes place at the table. It's referred to often in Christian tradition as the Eucharist, which is just a word for thanksgiving, and that's a perfectly legitimate word. I think sometimes Reformed Christians neglect that word sort of on the misunderstanding that that's a term used by other communions, but not so much by us. We could use a little bit of a stress upon the festive thanksgiving that belongs to the receiving of Christ by means of the Lord's Supper. But it's most commonly taught, referred to as the table of the Lord or the Holy Supper or the sacrament of the Lord's table. I think it's important that that language of table be teased out a little bit. What takes place in the Lord's Supper is not a unbloody re-sacrificing of Christ, as in the Roman Catholic tradition. Now, to be fair to that tradition, they don't call it another sacrifice. They call it a representation in an unbloody form of the sacrifice that Christ made upon the cross. But it's quite literally in the Roman Catholic tradition a sacrifice, and priests minister at something called an altar. I had a professor in Princeton who was quite unhappy with the furnishing of Miller Chapel because they had what he regarded as what looked to be an altar. It wasn't a table. A table, thing he said, has legs and you can sit, sit around the table. Uh, and so he was quite happy when Miller Chapel was refurbished and the new communion table was a true table. We could get into some questions about the uh, administration of the sacrament, I remember as a child in one strand of the Reformed tradition, people would literally be called forward uh, a group at a time and would celebrate the supper at a table. The symbolism was, was rich. Uh, it's perhaps impractical in our context uh, for that to be the case. Uh, while I'm talking about various aspects of debates regarding the Lord's Supper, uh, another one would be the question of in what way is Christ present so as to be received by us? In my tradition, the specific terminology the minister uses when administering the sacrament, the two elements of bread and wine that were appointed, the body representing the body that Christ gave upon the cross as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins, the wine, the blood, his precious blood that was shed, for a complete remission of all our sins. The, the formula is the bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ. The wine for which we give thanks is a communion of the blood of Christ. That preposition is significant. It tells us that we're not just sharing a meal with Christ. We're enjoying as we receive Christ sacramentally through and by means of the consecrated bread and wine, we receive Christ himself. We enjoy a true communion of 
and in Christ. I was, as a seminary student, uh, asked a question in my oral examination in my senior year. My professor read a section of the Belgic Confessions statement of what we receive in the sacrament. It says we actually eat and drink by the mouth of faith the true and natural body and blood of Christ. And he didn't tell me which confession he was reading. And he asked me the question, uh, what view of the sacrament does this represent? And I thought rather confidently it was Roman Catholic. And so I said, Roman Catholic. He said, no, wrong. It's the Reformed confession made in the Belgic confession. And so uh, what I want to say is that the Reformed confessions based upon the teaching of Scripture have a very strong view of the re- what might be called the real presence, the true eating and drinking and receiving, of course, spiritually with the mouth of faith, Christ as he's given us by means of the sacrament he's appointed, assuming it and understanding, of course, that that doesn't happen automatically. We have to come with the mouth of faith and eat believingly and drink believingly, and it's only as the Spirit, just as the Spirit works with the Word, granting us faith, the Spirit works, and apart from the Spirit's working the sacrament and our receiving actively in the way of faith, the sacrament doesn't sort of automatically in a kind of magical sense. It doesn't work, as the Roman Catholic Church would say, by the work performed, ex opera operato. Now, having said that, I've opened the door to a comment about in Christian tradition, there are two other views. What I've represented is the Reformed and the view Calvin defends in his writings, the spiritual presence, which is a real presence of Christ, occurs as the Spirit using the means, elements appointed, gives us a genuine participation in Christ. Calvin says, I more experience that than I can explain it. And it depends upon a working of the Spirit. And it's only as we lift up our hearts, the cursum corda, to the Lord, uh, who is seated at the Father's right hand, that we enjoy that kind of communion with him sacramentally. But in the Roman Catholic tradition, there's since the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215 been a teaching that the Mass administered by the priest as the elements are consecrated and the words are spoken, this is my body. Uh, We even have the little phrase, hocus pocus, which is a kind of a Protestant mockery of the Roman Catholic view that, and I'm not advocating that we do that necessarily, but it refers to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church that when the priest administers in Christ's behalf at the altar, the elements of bread and wine actually are transubstantiated, though their external appearance is still that of, they have all the appearance and taste and feel of being still bread, still wine. They are become the actual body and blood of Christ. So this is the reason you venerate the host, you preserve the consecrated elements in a sacristy, a little temple, tabernacle, in the or the priest consumes whatever remainder of wine or bread is left over after the 
the people of God have received the Mass. Uh, we reject that historically as Reformed believers. The Heidelberg Catechism has a fairly notorious statement on that, question and answer 80, and it condemns the misunderstanding that the elements themselves become the actual body and blood of Christ and so are worshipped. That's a form of idolatry. The idea that there's a, a new sacrifice or a renewing, a representing of Christ in an unbloody way in the sacri- uh, sacrifice of the Mass is regarded as a, also a, a demeaning, a serious diminishment of the sufficiency and perfection of Christ's sacrifice made once for all, never to be repeated, as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10. Now, another view similar to the Roman Catholic view is what normally historically has been called consubstantiation. Uh, Lutherans don't like that term. It's a term Reformed theologians will use. I think it's fair to use that term. It's a little different view of the elements. The elements are not changed as to their substance so as to become the actual body and blood of Christ, but Christ is actually in his body and blood, present in, with, and under the elements. And that gets us into some complicated issues of Christology that I'll avoid uh, in this presentation on the Lord's Supper. Uh, But it's, it's a viewpoint that wants to, and regards really the reform view as an inadequate view of Christ's presence. But it, it involves a doctrine of the ubiquity, the being present everywhere the sacrament is administered of the actual body and blood of Christ, which the Reformed have always regarded as a mixing and confusing of the attributes of Christ's deity and humanity in his state of exaltation. Now, there are other issues that we could discuss. Uh, Maybe I could only mention, I have only time to mention one or two Uh, Clearly in the Reformed Confessions, the idea that the sacrament of the Lord's Supper could be administered without the people of God present is rejected. And the notion that the sacrament could be performed by a priest to the benefit of believers who have died, not yet made perfectly holy, spending time in purgatory, uh, that too is regarded as uh, a kind of sacrilege. Uh, It's always been the the position of the Reformed Church is that the body of Christ, the members of Christ who are believers, when they assemble together, receive the sacrament. And, and it's not a an act or a work in a kind of sacerdotalist, sacramentalist sense that has benefit for the living and the dead. And the more it's performed by the priest, even with the people of God absence, uh, the more that grace of Christ is communicated to those who need it. Well, with that, I'll conclude what in some ways is an inadequate, but at least my attempt to give you a quick overview of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. With that groundwork provided by Dr. Venema, we'll pivot next time to the question of whether children may come to the Lord's table, which has been a growing trend among some Reformed churches. Join us next time as Dr. Venema assesses this issue of Pado communion For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.